As we come now before the very word of God, uh, please turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read along with me to Genesis in chapter 2. It's not hard to find, it's just right there in the front. Uh, Genesis in chapter 2. And before we read, uh, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord God, we, we know because you've told us so that all scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching and rebuking and t- correcting and training in righteousness that the man of God would be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, we want that to be true of us. Would you make us complete by your word now? By your spirit, would you open our minds to understand and our hearts to believe? Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 2. As we continue now our read through the opening of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, we will pick up a good number of verses, but we'll begin in verse 4. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of God. Now, just like any text that we've been in in Genesis, there is a lot to unpack here, but we want to take some time today to focus on a particular part of this text, specifically on how God made man. How God made man. 
That's our focus, eventually. It's an important matter for us, but it's going to take a moment for us to get here, of course, because we need to address a few other important matters here in Genesis first. In this section, we've, re- we've entered now into Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis 2 can be confusing to some people, especially because of its interesting relationship with Genesis chapter 1, the things that come before. In Genesis 1, if you've been here in these past months, that's where we hear all the in the beginning stuff, the, the seven days of creation. And this is clearly very different, at least in style, to what we read here now in chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 is this unique combination of, you know, history and poetry, at least poetry-ish, and liturgy. There's this highly ordered structure of days that are worshipful in, in, in its grandeur and beauty before God. And so one scholar called Genesis chapter 1 this exalted prose narrative. Which, even if we don't know what that means, that sounds about right, that it hits the nail on the head. We've got exalted prose narrative. Whatever we might call the writing style of of Genesis 1, we can see what happens there. That, That God, who is the sole creator, just by speaking, takes the earth from a place of a formless void to a place that's fruitful, and alive, and most of all, good. That's the setup. So now Genesis 2, where we are here, also looks at creation in a sense, but from a very different vantage point. Genesis 2 is not in conflict with Genesis 1. It's not as if the writer suddenly forgot what he was talking about and and, and undercuts himself. It just takes a very different lens. So Genesis 2 mainly looks, or Genesis 1 mainly looks at the beginning of creation, but Genesis 2 mainly looks at what comes of creation. It's what the heavens and the earth now generate into. That's what the opening of this section is triggering us. In in verse 4, we see this signpost that's a critical marker throughout the book of Genesis. We've talked about the Hebrew word toledot. We don't need to go into that again, but in my Bible, it's translated with the word generation. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Some translations opt to translate that word generation as this is the account or this is the record, and I I don't think that quite gets the sense of it. This word focuses on the descendants of a thing, the next generation, what comes after. So we could say, this is how the tree began to branch. And this is a signpost that cues the listener in to where the narrative is going. Now, we want to notice that chapter 2 of Genesis does not follow the generations of Adam. Do you notice that? It doesn't say this is the generations of Adam. We hear that in chapter 5. Here are the generations of Adam. Adam begat Seth, Seth begat Enosh, Enosh begat Kenan, Kenan begat Mahalalel, and even more complex names, and on and on it goes for generations. That's chapter 5, but Genesis 2 through 4 has a much bigger view. These are the generations, not of Adam, but these are the generations 
of the heavens and the earth. That is, that while we meet this guy, Adam, the focus is not on him specifically, but on how he impacts all of creation. How he impacts what the heavens and the earth generate or branch into. And in this small space of just a few chapters, there's a lot that happens to the heavens and the earth. We, we see the Garden of Eden. We see the, the caretakers of the garden who are to, to caretake in goodness. We see the encounter of the serpent coming soon, the fall into sin. We see the first children of man where one brother murders another. So the whole scene goes south pretty fast. Where, where this generations of the heavens and the earth move quickly from the blessing of God to now the curse of God. That's where it goes. It's not hopeless. There's a glimmer of hope, just a glimmer. But it sets the trajectory now of these generations. And that's not only to travel through Genesis, that goes through the whole Bible, even up until now. This is the generations of the heavens and the earth that we are now part of. And we can see it, we feel it. There's rot in the tree branches. We can feel the groan of creation under this curse. We're aware of it, see it probably on a daily basis. We even contribute to it. And all of these generations eventually in the scriptures are leading us right up to the feet of Jesus. Jesus who is in the beginning as God, but who also becomes flesh and dwells among man. And the scripture speaks of Jesus as this last Adam, the new Adam, that he's the end of one series of generations, but also the beginning of another type of generation. He's a true man, but a new, a new man. He's the, the great hope for creation and all mankind. He's the Lord and Savior of the world for all who believe. So, so those who repent and believe in his name would have new life. To live again in a way that is not crushed under the curse of sin. This is what happens in death and resurrection, that we are born again in Jesus to a, to a new sort of family tree, that we would not just be in Adam, but in Jesus. That's good, good news. Now, that's the scope of what's going on here. Genesis 2 here, then, is setting us on this course of generations, the generations of the heavens and the earth, and it does so by zooming in on a particular part of the cosmos. Okay? So, uh, you know, I, I, I've tried to explain uh, similar sorts of things to our kids in this way. What, one day we had a discussion about pores, like pores of your skin, what are pores? That's a hard thing to explain to kids. And I was like, they're like these little like buckets in your skin and they have oil and it just sounded grosser and grosser the more I was trying to explain it. So finally I got out my, my camera phone, which now are amazing, you can zoom way in. And so I was going to try to zoom in on my skin and I pull out my phone's camera and I, I shine it on, on my arm so they could hopefully see pores. And, and uh, one of our kids said, whoa, it looks like a cracky desert. <laughs> 
And my thought was, well, thank you, and I guess I need some lotion. Uh, but, but the same arm can look very different depending on what lens we're using, right? We know this. So Genesis 1 takes one lens. Genesis 2 now takes a very zoomed-in lens to try to see the pores. There's, there's some overlap between the two, but we're mostly looking at part of the events of what, what are happen in day six in the creation of man. And the main field of vision here now that we've read is not the whole land, not the whole earth, not all the cosmos. It's on this very particular patch of earth that we know as the Garden of Eden. And this garden is presented as a real geographic place. There's this whole discussion of all these rivers, some of which we can still identify in the Middle East. There's Tigris and Euphrates and such. But you can hear the zoom in in verse 8. If you're looking, it reads, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. So we've got a few identifiers there. It's in the east, which in my mind goes, east of what, you know? Isn't east kind of a relative term? It depends on where you're standing. Well, Moses, as he's writing this, with the people in the wilderness at that time, the east, there was a clear east to them. So in the region of the east, now there's, there's an area called Eden, which is a region of land that means pleasure. And the Garden of Eden is not that whole land, but there's a garden in Eden in the east. Do you hear the zoom in? East, Eden, Garden of Eden. So now we're looking at this very, this relatively small area of earth that has been specially chosen by God for a particular purpose. And that land in the beginning has no bush of the field, no small plant, it's got no rain or, or sense of irrigation to grow plants, but, but now God plants here this, this garden of pleasure. There are clear boundaries to the garden, even. I don't know if you put out railroad ties like some people do, little markers, but there's some sort of boundaries. Maybe there was some sort of hedge. We don't know. But later, when Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, exiled because of their sin, the Lord puts cherubim and a flaming sword at the east end, so there must have been some clear markers of where the garden was. At any rate, for now, the narrative doesn't really care about what's happening outside the garden. The focus is to zoom in on the garden itself. And we hear this in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I know this isn't right, but I, I picture one of those, you know, the Sims game that you can uh, have, put people in certain places, there's a little, like, finger, and, well, where are we going to put Adam? Here's Eden, Adam. That, that, that's what goes on in my mind. But there is a sense, that's just my head. From the scripture, there's a sense in which Adam is created for this garden. It's not all Adam was made for. He's made for more than that. But it's a significant part of his created purpose that man was made for the garden. And man's relationship to the garden is part of what makes man distinct from other creatures, what makes us unique from other animals. So you might hear some people say, the main thing that makes man different from animals is that man has or is a soul, 
and animals don't have souls. That's not true. That's clearly not what the scripture teaches. Animal life in the scripture is spoken of as soul life as well. The, he- the Hebrew word for, that's often translated as soul in my Bible here in chapter 2 is translated as creature, and it shows up again in verse 19 that, that every cre- living creature, that is all the animals, were brought to man. So, so all of these, the sea creatures, the birds of the sky, the beasts of the field, and man, we are all living souls. It's, it's possible even that animal souls may be eternal just as man's souls are. I, there's no doubt in my mind from the scripture that there will be animals in the new heavens and the new earth. No doubt in my mind. There's good reason in the scripture to think that. It's, it's likely even, I think, that, that animals that have been long extinct, so, you know, dinosaurs and dodo birds may now be in the new heavens and the earth and the end of all things. And it's even possible, possible, that there are some of the exact same individual animals that we know here. So some of our pets that may have died or will die may be in the new heavens and new earth. The Bible's not entirely clear on that point. We trust that God's good and right. But what we know at least is that, is that what we call soul or being is true of us is also true of the animals. That is not what makes us distinct from them. What makes us distinct from animals is not just our substance, It's not just our soul. What makes us distinct, at least in part, is that we have a unique, God-given task in his creation. And that he's given us the means to fulfill that task. You can see it at the end of the text we read, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? to work it and keep it. That's the task. Put in the garden to work it and keep it. That is a large part of what it means for us to be made in God's image. That we have dominion over the earth he made, a call to fill and subdue the earth, that we're to reign in the authority of God. That's what part of what gives us a unique relationship to God, fellowship and camaraderie, if I can even say that, with God, that, that, that God has given man this work to cultivate and keep the earth, to protect and serve his good creation. So listen, do you see yourself as part of that? Do you see yourself as a worker and keeper of the garden? I know plenty of people, this isn't only about environment, but it is in part. And plenty of people view environmental issues as, you know, just a bunch of politics that people fight about. 
You know, when we, when we think about environmental things, maybe we think about climate change or carbon footprint or emissions or the Earth Summit and, and the, the Paris Agreement and, and, and pollution and ocean dumping and glacier melts and all of those things. And, and, and there's a lot to unpack there. There's, there's reasonable debate, even amongst faithful Christians, about how we should respond to that, what exactly is going on, to what degree government even should engage with those issues. We, I don't want to demean that. We should take that serious, seriously, thoughtfully, even though we may not all agree on it. But listen, the Bible is not talking politics here. This is not a command to presidents and countries. You know, a lot of people, Christians, make the mistake of thinking that the goal of the Christian life is to somehow legislate good. So we better vote. We better get out there and get the right person in power so we can fix all the bad stuff that's happening in our country and in the earth. And, and that, that sort of mindset produces a sort of ongoing anxiety, ongoing despair even, that, that the vote is going to tip the wrong way, that we're going to get the wrong guy or girl, I suppose, in office, and it's all going to fall apart. And that's just not the approach of the Bible. The Bible cares so very little about politics. It cares some. You know, voting is all well and good. We're called to pray for our governing leaders. We're, 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 we're to call them to goodness and uprightness. We're, we're to submit to their God-given authority. But politics is, is largely just in the background of the scriptures. We are zoomed in here. Creation care is not something that's out there in Washington. It is right here in this patch of Eden. The focus is not on governors, it's on the citizens of the earth. And at this point, we've only got one. One citizen, Adam, eventually soon Eve, they are the ones then called by God to work and keep the garden. And that doesn't just mean that they, that they planted tomatoes or okra or corn, maybe they did, uh, that sounds yummy. Uh, but that they are the, they're the divinely appointed caretakers of this patch of earth to be faithful stewards over any trees or rivers or plants or animals or other people that might be in that patch. And listen, that is your call too. To work and to keep your God-given patch. I know it's hard. We trust the Spirit to help us. But that's part of what God has done to make you unique from cats or monkeys or elephants or caterpillars. Whew. That was all preliminary work haven't even made it to the main point of what we're talking about today, but things we need to know, okay? I won't take just as much time, okay? Don't worry. The last bit, all of that that I've said so far is touching on what God has made us for, the part of the reason why God has made man. In the rest of our time, 
we need to look at this related issue, not of what God has made us for, but of what God has made us of. What God has made us of. There is a glimpse here in this text of how God made man. And it's different than anything we see in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God creates almost entirely just by speaking, by divine fiat and command. But here in Genesis 2, it's different. If I can put it this way, God gets a little more hands-on. So you may have noticed, verse 8, that God doesn't speak the Garden of Eden into being. He does what? He plants the garden in Eden. And similar thing is true of man. Look in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The man whom he had formed. The man is not spoken into existence. He is formed. That Hebrew word is a word that commonly refers to the works of a potter, a clay maker. We hear it again toward the end of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. Here's the verse. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. God forms the man this way. So if you ever watch kids with Play-Doh, or me, I like Play-Doh, although I can only make snakes. Right? Not very, uh, not very artistic, uh, myself at least as regard to play, uh, uh, clay goes. But you know, see kids or people working with clay, and different people have different faces. Some got the tongue sticking out. Some got the, the eyebrows that are really working. Some are laser focused. Different faces, different things. But you can see the, the sort of focus, time, attention put into the crafting of the clay. And, and of course, we know that, that the work and skill of God infinitely transcends our, our own work. But I think there is some comparison to be made here. That in the making of man, th- there's, there's this meticulous formation of creation in the hand of God. We don't know how exactly, but, but perhaps there was even some process where he, he pinched and stretched the clay. Ooh, how about two arms? Boop, boop. And we don't know exactly what it was like, but clearly some intention, focus upon it to form the man. And in regard to the man, for the first time in the whole creation account, we are also told the material that God used to create. Prior, God has made things out of nothing. Let there be light, and there's light. But when God makes man, he doesn't make him from nothing. He makes man out of two components. Maybe you notice them. Let's look. It's in verse 
verse 7. Listen for the two components that God uses. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature or soul. Do you hear the two? Mankind is made out of dust of the earth and of the breath of God. That doesn't make us God, but that we are alive by his breath. We're made of the dust of the earth and the breath of God. And that's not just true for Adam now. This becomes true for all the generations after him. That Eve, even though she's taken from the rib of Adam, ultimately originates from the same sort of material, the the dust of the earth and the breath of God. And, And Adam and Eve's kids and their kids and their kids and every human then that lives on the earth, this becomes true of us. And and, and even though there's a day when we must return to dust in our bodies, because of the death of the curse of sin, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Abraham even speaks of himself. He says, I am but dust and ashes, which is where we get at burials, you know, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. That's at death. But as long as we are living, we are earth dust and God breath. It is important for us to remember and keep those two things together and not separate them. This is what helps keep us in our proper place. To recognize them both together will keep us in both humbleness and in honor in the way that God made us. You know, when we look at our, ourselves or others, really any human, we dare not think too highly The scripture says the Lord knows our frame and he knows that we are but dust. We dare not think too highly, but we also dare not think too lowly. We also hear in the scripture, the spirit of God has made me. The breath of the almighty gives me life. That's true of you. So I want you to do something for me. Activity, I know. I don't do this very often, but I'm almost done. Humor me. I want you to put your hand on your slightly open mouth. So your lips are a little open, but touch your lips. And just breathe. You feel that? What you are feeling there in your lips and breath is this intermingling of heaven and earth. It's the intertwining of the supernatural and the natural. 
the inheritance of this first God breath and the dust of the earth. Let the awe of that sink in. Man is a truly wondrous creature, specially formed by the Lord at his own potter wheel. And that reality, the wonder that he's made us in, that reality is part of what makes it so truly heinous to see the effect of sin and what we have done to ourselves. That we have taken this wondrous thing and and scoff and dismiss other people with sort of prideful disdain. Or, Or maybe we think destructive or degrading things about our own bodies. Or we do unspeakable things and wallow in our own ignorance and shame and guilt. We have corrupted God's meticulously formed handiwork in a way that is hellish and damnable and is enough to take our breath away. And that persists from generation to generation to generation to generation as one after another of us descends back to the dust. What are we to do? I mean, it's no surprise that the answer often is Jesus. Here comes then this man, this last Adam, this new man, Jesus, who not only receives the breath of God, but gives the breath of God. The life that Jesus breathes is not into his nostrils, but breathed out, that he's breathing life to us, blessing, not curse, that he puts upon all those who are his. So the scripture says this about Jesus toward the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, uh, verse 47. The first man, that is Adam, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the work of Jesus, to transform his people, breathe the life of heaven back in us that is not lost. That's his work in us. And until that work in us is done, it is good for us to remember that in a sense, we are still of Adam. We are formed of God, of earth dust and God breath. Let that both bow your head and lift your head before your maker. Pray with me. Lord, would you press 
these things now upon us. We know your word says we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not for us. Help us to believe that and know that these gifts are from you and not us. Would you keep us from both boasting and from belittling that we would honor you with our lives? We ask your grace in this, in Jesus' name.